Father, what amazing love that you have shown us. The richness of heaven that is in Jesus Christ. And we feast at that bounty right now as you present before us your word, which feeds us, which nourishes and sustains us and grows us. There is no other counsel we take. There is no place else that we find your plan. We thank you for your word. Guide us and lead us in it right now. Be with me as you have called me to preach to your people. Be with your people as you have called us all to listen, to be transformed, and to put our hope and our trust in you. Be with us now, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Passage today is found in the book of Psalms, chapter 131. You can turn to the outline in your bulletin, and uh, you can see it on the back side. Read the left-hand column. That right-hand column is for later. Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. May God bless this reading of his word. Think back to 1988. And uh, let's see, it was, a, it was a good time. It was the end of the Reagan administration going into the first Bush. And there was a lot of music out there. And... Number one for two weeks on the Billboard 100. Do you remember it? It was the first time an a cappella song had hit the first place. Don't worry, be happy. So by uh, Bobby McFerrin. <clears throat> Don't worry, be happy. Even my immigrant father knew what this song was. So I'd just go around, just kind of smiling, winking, saying, don't worry, be happy. <clears throat> and some people think that this psalm, this psalm that tells us not to worry, is the don't worry, be happy song of the Bible. But, and apologies to any of you who adore that song and count it among your top five, but that would make this psalm shallow, trite, and only fit for someone hopped up on who knows what cocktail of drugs. This is not some ridiculous, don't worry, be happy, Bobby McFerrin song that says, don't worry, without giving a reason why. Instead, what is laid out before us today is the great song of peace for you both now 
and forevermore. It presents two words, two concepts, restless and still, or anxious and full of love. And so the first thing that I want to mention to you that the passage talks about today is the restlessness of the proud heart. And I want us to think about how our proud hearts are restless. Now, we can see restlessness in two ways. And I see those two ways played out before me, in you, my dear friends, and in myself. Some of you are anxious, nervous folk. Yeah, some of you are smiling. Because you know, and I know that you know, that you are anxious, nervous folk. I myself am a product of a worry wart. And I'm sure that no small part of that has rubbed off on me. And you are anxious, worried, constantly by things beyond your control. Things that you cannot change. And so the only thing that you do, can do in response is worry. But then there are others who don't take that lying down and they are driven. And some of you are driven, folks. And what do you do? You take command of the situation and the world around you and you work at shaping it in your image to make what you want to happen, happen. Now, I'm not saying that there's something wrong in being cautious. In fact, there's other parts, many parts of the Psalms that would, Proverbs, that would call that wisdom. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to work hard and to be diligent. And again, Proverbs would call that wisdom. But what is the motivation behind both hearts. You see, both the nervous heart and the driven heart are really the same heart in its core, in its motivation. Why? Because both are filled with desperation. Thoreau, the existentialist in Walden, said it this way, and I think he's got it right. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Desperate because they want and do not have. They want a particular thing and they don't have it. And so you can turn to the back of your bulletin again and let me lay out to you the anti Psalm 131 and how this looks. My heart is proud and my eyes are raised too high. I concern myself with everything that is beyond my control. I am never still, never at rest. Like a screaming child, I am always anxious, never at peace. I have no place to rest my hope. That's just horrible, isn't it? 
But this is the heart of desperation. What do we worry about? Isn't it about things that are beyond our control? But why do we worry about them? This passage says it's because our, our hearts are proud, our eyes are haughty. What does that mean? It means to want to have control over things that God has not put you in control over. See, the nervous heart is desperate because it wants control and doesn't have it. The driven heart is desperate because it wants control and doesn't have it. And so they are one and the same. Can't you see this about yourself? You see, you're not usually anxious or driven. You're usually both. For my life, you know, my anxiety drives me then to be driven. But then the end of my work and drivenness causes me to realize that I haven't changed my situation in life. And so I am nervous once again and anxious. And we are desperate, wanting control, but God has not given it to us. Doesn't this sound like the original sin? Adam and Eve, how were they tempted? They wanted the knowledge of God. God has not withheld his knowledge from Adam and Eve, but they wanted a knowledge of God, a knowledge of good and evil apart from God. They wanted control when God has not given them control over that. I can see this in me. You know, here's what I'm like. You know, I know lots of things. I love knowing things. I just, the sheer pursuit of knowledge just makes me happy. All right, Wikipedia was made for me. There isn't a week that goes by that I'm not there 50 times, at least. But there are times, and you, if you are a friend who loves me, you can call me on this, that I take that knowledge and I'm snooty. Haughty eyes. Snootiness. But I can tell you from personal experience that snooty people are restless. Desperate for status and standing. But here are other ways that I observe that you and I are like this. Maybe some of you can call these your words. I'm like this when I worry about what college I'm going to get into. And I get that B instead of an A. I'm like this when there are more bills at the end of the month than money. I'm like this when my kids disobey me. I'm like this when the diagnosis comes back and I fall apart. See, the situation is bad, but here's what's worse. You know that expression, you're not paranoid if they're out to get you? Here, it's not all in your head. Things are bad. Things hurt. We struggle. We suffer. What if you have real reasons to be upset? 
then how does good old Bobby McFerrin sound? Does he give you anything that you can rest your head on? You know, Augustine, St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, says that there's a reason for this restlessness, for this desperation. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I'm going to say that again. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. One of my professors says that this means that God has made a God-sized and God-shaped hole in our hearts. And nothing but He can fill it. And like every vacuum in nature, it abhors emptiness and will draw everything into itself possible, whether anxiety or drivenness, whether your labors or fretting. But it will not satisfy. None of that was meant to be enough. But there is an answer that we see here. The rest of the quieted heart. You see, this is not a bumper sticker that easily says, let go and let God. You know, that statement is an attempt at faith, but it is a weak attempt at faith. It's not the nature of what we see here as the weaned child. The psalmist is not encouraging shallow thinking and indifference about important matters. See, this isn't a touchy-feely, nice and fuzzy, precious moments picture being put before us of a baby in its mother's arms. Do you remember what an unweaned child is like? For some of you, that was a long time ago. Some of you haven't been there yet. Some of you are going through it right now. You can recognize the ones that are going through it right now. Just... But I know I have to explain it for those who are completely clueless about life. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> an unweaned child, this is how I understand it. So because I too was such a clueless person. When Abby was born, I took her to seminary. I took her, I was on the campus, and I was holding her like this, you know, nice, good football carry, right? And she was just fidgeting and crying. I'm like, what do you want? I like to think that I was calm. I was like, oh, what do you want? But someone, a brother came up to me and offered assistance. And so I'm sure that the former was the picture that I was portraying rather than that calm exterior that I like to think that I carry myself with. And he goes, Martin, you're doing it all wrong. And I'm like, I'm not going to drop her. I mean, it's just, it's holding a baby. What's to do wrong? And he explains to me, Martin, in that position, she thinks that you're going to feed her. You see, you know, just who normally does the feeding in this position, right? So, the baby's in countdown, but it never hitting zero. When's the launch? When's the, you know, when is the food coming? And an unweaned child has no trust, has no understanding that it will be fed when it needs to be fed. 
The unweaned child is restless, is moving, is demanding, is doing everything in its power to gain what it thinks it needs, but his efforts produce nothing. Even counterproductive to its desires. The baby has no means to affect change in the situation. And so do you see the connection then between the proud heart, haughty eyes, the restless soul, and an unweaned child? But David describes being a weaned child, stilled and quieted. What is the difference between a weaned child? And by the way, back at this time, much harder to wean a child. No Similac or Enfamil to choose before at your local Costco to get the nice big savings because they're expensive. No silicone nipples and Dr. Brown's bottles. All right, so mom, you're it. And <laughs> it's just until the kid can eat enough on its own outside of you. What would that be? A year? Ugh, it's just... So, weaned child. A weaned child is satisfied, can rest in its mother's arms. Doesn't matter the position. The weaned child isn't obsessed with being fed and understands there's more to be had here than food. There is the relationship it has with its mother. The weaned child can focus and rest in that relationship rather than fret and worry or be driven in its rooting and looking. You know, Abby gives me another, gives us another illustration here. I received permission from her, but don't make a big deal out of it with her, okay? <clears throat> so, Ethan, you can, you can bug him about this. I don't think it'll bother him. So my three-year-old son, Ethan, is we are sleep training. In fact, we have been a constant state of sleep training for the last two and a half years. And every time we think we've got it licked, he throws us another curveball. The latest one was figuring out the light switch. See, most kids are like canaries in bird cages. You put the blanket over it, turn out the lights, and they'll put themselves out. But once Ethan figured out the light switch, six nonstop hours of screaming. No pause. This is a kid that two years before we were worried about his asthma. No pause, kicking and screaming. By the grace of God, my neighbor's upstairs. Hadn't moved in yet, and we're out of town. So the next day, I have this brainchild. Oh, that's a good one. I kill the circuit breaker to the room. That's right. So flick that switch all you want. It's not happening. And so I camp out by the door for 15, 20 minutes to make sure that we're all good, that my genius has, in fact, taken root and solved this problem of the ages. And then I go out to the living room and go to my lovely wife, Kim, and tell her, all pleased, I figured it out. Kill the power to the room, flip the circuit breaker. And then her look of concern comes back at me. 
but that's the same breaker for our room. Abby's in that room, and there's no nightlight. See, she had, strugg- she had struggled for a few years with fear of the dark, and so the nightlight, we told her, was her reason for not worrying. There is light. It's not a lot, a lot of light, but there is light. You don't have to worry. And so now we're panicking, and we run. Make it sound like we live in a big place. It's a long place, but it's not big. And we run from the living room back to their bedroom. And we rush in and we find Abby, placid, on the bed, calm. Still awake, but calm. And we go, Abby, you're awake. Yep. But it's dark. Yep. Aren't you afraid? And she goes, no. You see, the moon is right there. I prayed because it was dark and God put the moon there like a nightlight for me. Now, get beyond the awe moment, okay? And I'm not making such a big deal out of, oh, my daughter, the theological, like, just trained you know, just genius who is under, understand and applied worldview. But in this, she has applied biblical worldview. In this, she has trusted the Lord. She has quieted her heart. The situation is the same. She's in the dark. The moon, this isn't the first time that the moon was in the window. But she interprets reality according to her God who loves her and cares for her. David had reasons to worry, didn't he? You know, it's a study of Psalms that we've been on for the last few months, but it might as well have been a study of David, because he wrote a lot of these things. And let's recount some of his life, shall we? On the run, because his king and father of his best friend is trying to put a spear through him. On the run, and acting crazy-like in front of another king who's his enemy. On the run, because his son is trying to kill him so he can be king. Outed right in front of the royal court on having a murderous love affair by the very prophet of God himself. And then on the run again because another son wanted to hunt him down and kill him. David had reasons to worry. And John Morkin pointed out how this psalm was probably written after all of that stuff, when he was standing as king. And he's remembering those times and remembering how God has provided life and safety and rescue. You know, David says that, I haven't concerned myself with things too great and wonderful for me. He's the king. There's a lot of things to be concerned with. But he doesn't worry. Because, do you know what God has revealed to him that he could be, just see, things that aren't too wonderful? He has a God who loves him, who is his help when he lifts up his eyes to the hills. He has a God who has saved him from the spear, from the lion, from his son, from murder, from treachery. He remembers. 
and he trusts. You know, John said last week in this quote, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff for God. See, David's learned that. He's learned that, according to Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, which the Bible says the wages of sin is death. He does not pay us with what we deserve. And so David, like Abby, has learned to still and quiet his soul. And Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7, wraps this up for us nicely. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see what comes before your requests? Thanksgiving. You know what you need to have in order to have thanksgiving? You need to know what you're thankful for. You have to see something that deserves your thankfulness. David saw that. And the Bible calls us to see it. So will you be still and find your hope in the Lord? You see, God calls us now. David, as king, stands as the example, and at the end of this says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Put your hope in him as I am putting my hope in him. As a leader goes, so goes the country. As a king goes, so goes the nation. And we see that you can either have a proud heart or a humble heart. You see, the restless, grasping child is desperate because in sin, we are desperate. We are separated from God. But we see that ultimately, this psalm, as with every psalm, is a passage that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Who else was meek and humble? Who else, knowing what was to come, quieted his heart in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer and saying, but Father, your will be done. Who else did not protest his persecution? He was like a lamb to the slaughter. Who else went quietly to the cross and even trusted his Father with his very last breath, saying, into your, your hands, I commit my spirit. The trust of the quieted heart. This is our humble king. And unless we know the gospel of Jesus Christ, unless we understand justification by faith and not by works, the makeup of our hearts is to prove ourselves Right? To master the universe, to show God, I am good enough, I am smart enough, accept me. You must accept me. My friends, 
the Bible says we are not good enough. We could never be good enough. There was only one who was good enough. Jesus Christ, who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. The Bible says we cannot, but Jesus did. Salvation is only by grace in Jesus Christ. So the unweaned child is constantly working to feed, to sustain, to save itself. But the weaned child rests in the knowledge that they are taken care of, cared for, and loved, apart from anything they can do. We, in the gospel, find that we could not do anything for ourselves, but Jesus Christ has done it all. And so if you look at the reflection on the inside page of your bulletin, I put a little reflection there. It's another bumper sticker like better than let go and let God. It says, no God, no peace. If you don't have God, you have no hope to have peace. Again, he knows how we are made. He made us with a hole that only he can fill. But no God and no peace. If you know God, the God of grace who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for your sins, then you can know peace, both, as David says, now and forevermore. And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to do this now. I don't want anyone to leave without putting your hope in the Lord now. The Bible says today is the day. Do you feel the call to do it now? We'll have elders. If Elias and Christine could be up here, and if John is, Pastor John is available, I'm available. If you have never done this, and you sense you need to do this, then come. Don't let another day go by. Or if you're like me, and for the 10,000th time, you need to come, and you need to remember. You see, the weaning process is a process. It's a miserable and painful, sleep-depriving, sanity-shattering process. But there is goodness on the other side. We constantly want to follow our desperation and do something for ourselves. And we need to come again and again by prayer and petition to the one who says, my peace is yours. Today is the day, but the psalm also says it's forevermore. This is a struggle we continue. Weaning only lasts. It feels like forever, but it only lasts a short while. The rest of our lives are given to this weaning process. So will you help me? I mean, don't make too big a thing out of it, but if you, make, if you catch me in my snootiness, call me on it. I'm not always snooty, all right? But small groups look to each other and call each other and help each other 
I know you're desperate. I know you're anxious. I know you're killing yourself with your drivenness. Let me pray with you. And let's talk about what stilling and quieting your soul can look like. You know, moms and dads, will you take your children with their small, desperate hearts and help them to lay those, that franticness at the feet of the one who has died that they might live? I pray that in 5, 10, 50 years from now, we will say that our church is a church that has grown and is constantly growing in this weaning. That we might be stilled and quieted before our Lord and just focus on that relationship that He has made for us in His Son. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how tender you are that you describe yourself in these motherly ways. And you are all the love that we need. And you have shown to us all that we need in Jesus Christ alone. And you say that you are with us now and forevermore. Jesus has said that he is with us from now to the end of the age. In every communion that we take, we say that we preach his death until he comes. And in the benediction, we say that you are with us both now and forevermore. We thank you. We are not alone. We are never alone because of the one who has descended from heaven to earth that he might know our sins and die for them. We thank you for our Savior. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.